Amen. Ooh, hot mic, hot mic. There we go. All right. Good morning, everybody. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. And today, if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Psalm 138. Psalm 138, as we continue our summer in the Psalms. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, don't panic. We'll have those words for you on the screen. Also helpful just because, you know, we bounce around at Hope Church. You don't know where we're going to be. Psalm 138. So one of the songs you sang this morning, and the Holy Spirit does this because <laughs> Lord knows I'm not uh, organized enough to, to help with coordinating like what I'm going to be speaking and, and kind of what we're going to be singing, but the Holy Spirit seems to just do that on his own, to put together some of the themes. And you sang a song this morning that said, over and over again, you're faithful to the end. It talks about being found in sin. And it talks about over and over again. Honestly, I don't know what's more discouraging in the Christian life than that experience of repenting, praying to God, asking for forgiveness, telling him about something you did, confessing, repenting, and realizing that you said the exact same prayer, what, yesterday? Day before that? See, we talk about a grace-based life. We talk about a sinful nature. You put those things together and you've got this experience as a Christian. Sinning. Mm. And, and then sinning again. That song over and over again comes from the collective experience of a Christian who says, um, Father, I'm repenting again. Now, again, I know not everybody in the room's already a Christian, and maybe you haven't had that experience yet, but I think everybody in the room understands what it's like to be stuck, to feel stuck when it comes to a specific thing that you want to change, and it's just not changing. If that's the case, and I know that it is, maybe you see it, maybe you don't, but if that's the case, what do we do about it? God doesn't intend for us to live that way. We do need to get out of that. We do need to see that change. We want to glorify God by showing a life that is changed by the grace that he's given us through Christ. How do we do that? Well, one thing I want to encourage you with is a, um, an experience, a, an article that was, I thought was really helpful from a guy named David Pallison. And he talked about um, sexual sin, seeing people that have repeated sexual sin. Recidivism is a word for the kind of going back to a pattern is really high with sexual sin. And so if you're a pastor who counsels people and tries to love people well and you understand your own heart, you see something that you want to change and it's hard to change. And he said, if you're in the experience of trying to counsel people in that world, what do you do? Well, he said, I think what's more helpful is to see the whole of a person and understand that there's many different things going on at the same time. He imagines it in like a movie theater. So this is what he says. Imagine a multiplex theater and it's screening many different movies simultaneously. Immorality or violation, may be the feature film advertised on the marquee, but other significant films are playing in other screening rooms. 
The war with sin, the experience of affliction, and the triumph of grace take place in many places in your life simultaneously. A breakthrough dealing with anger or pride or anxiety or laziness may have a ripple effect that eventually help to disarm the big boogeyman that has been hogging all the attention and earnest concern. I think he's right. And part of the reason that I make this case is because this also works positively. These are not just things that you want to take out of your life, but things that you want to put into your life are all connected because you're just one person. And if I tell you that you need to work on gratitude, thankfulness, my concern is that you're going to think that's maybe a little lame. That maybe some part of you is going to consider gratitude to be pretty small in the scope of the things that you thought you needed from the Lord this morning. But no. If, by God's grace, we can grow in this way, then we're going to exhibit to ourselves and start to to condition ourselves to live a grace-based lifestyle that touches all the stuff that we trade in and out as we become Christians. It says in Ephesians 5, I think this is really helpful. Either or, he says, don't get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You can imagine being drunk with wine and getting together with the people and you're all singing together about the piano man or one more bottle of beer on the wall or you know whatever you sing. You can imagine. And he's saying, don't do that. Instead... And he's got a mirrored experience. Instead, the same but the opposite. Be filled with the Spirit and grip yourself around other people and sing. Be captured by the same level and much greater of joy, but through a totally different avenue. Take and replace. And the replacement is going to overflow with all the stuff that, that the sin promised in the first place. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This this taking the one thing and supplying instead the other when it comes to thankfulness touches something extraordinarily deep. Psalm 138 talks about it. It says, I give thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart before the gods I sing your praise. Now, As we get into this psalm, he begins by just singing about his thankfulness. I mean, you could think about this as a a song that they would sing during a service in the Old Testament where they would be doing a sacrifice of thanks. As they come forward, they're going to do this thing where they're going to show God their thankfulness. They might have a song that helps to capture and remind them of what they should be feeling as they go through the motions of this thanks offering. And he begins with, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. There's this idea that you kind of walk through your life and you're going to see lots of opposing options. Just like Ephesians is giving you either or. Your life is constantly giving you an either or. You can imagine Paul as he's walking through Athens. In the New Testament, the guy who wrote a lot of it is this guy, the Apostle Paul. And at one point, he goes to Athens, Greece. It's just like modern-day Athens, Greece. And in the ancient times, it was even more a center of kind of cultural influence as historically it has been. And as he was walking through Athens, he was confronted because he saw all of these different shrines and all these different representations of all of these different gods, so much so that even though they had hundreds and hundreds available... They even had a god, a a temple, an idol for the unknown god. 
that's kind of funny. You don't have to laugh, but it's just the idea that you would write out all the different gods you can think of, and then eventually you're like, okay, but let's put one more for all the other ones we just maybe don't know about yet. And Paul uses that as his kind of end to start preaching the gospel at this Areopagus spot, this place where people would go and share their different philosophies. You have that same experience today. As you walk through modern life, you have a plethora of options. You are not born in like 11th century rural France where there's one option. You live in a world with unlimited options. Stuff you've never even thought of, you can find quickly on YouTube somebody giving you a compelling and comprehensive case for that other ideology. It's even more devious than that. It's not just the kind of tip of the hat philosophically where you say, okay, what else could I be if I don't want to be a Christian? There's a constant draw, a constant pull on your heart towards a thousand things that actually work against the biblical concepts of who God is and who we are. And yet... Part of how this, uh, this psalm writer, the King David, is going to argue against that influence, he's going to fight against that uh, pull away, is with thankfulness. He's going to compare and he's going to sing. Before all the gods, with his whole heart, he's going to give thanks to the Lord. He's going to remember the goodness of the Lord and he's going to talk about it. That's something that I think we all understand happens when you really experience something good. Google reviews make sense, but they're also kind of evil. I feel so bad for these little restaurants that are passion projects for somebody, and you know that they put all their money into it, and yet somebody goes in there having a bad day, gets real judgmental, and all of a sudden, boop, 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 and then Google, and now that restaurant's got a bad review. What do you do? I kind of don't like that part of it, but... There's also this other part of it. You ever go into a restaurant and have something that's just truly spectacular? And you just look around. Maybe this is me. I mean, it's part of my DNA, I think, to be somebody who proclaims. But I think it's in you, too. You experience something good. You go, oh. And then you want to tell somebody. You want a mountaintop to be able to express the uh, Real Taqueria has this pineapple drink. I don't know if they just blend up pineapples and add sugar. I have no idea what magic goes into it. But it's delicious. And I'm a, like, several refill a drink a meal kind of guy. And so for me to give up my refills to have just one drink, it's got to be spectacular. And this pineapple thing, it'll change your life. Well, what do you do? You either have a pulpit that you can preach from about pineapple drink at Real Taqueria. Or, you know, you can do something. But why do you want to? That's kind of how we're built. I think we're built to sort of taste and tell. We're built to sort of see and then sing, to react and this David guy is reacting because he's seen something. He's giving a voice to this praise because he's seen something that is that good. His thankfulness is overflowing into praise. That's a great reason to build thankfulness into your life. To take a moment and realize things that you're thankful for in what God is doing in this time, in this day, in this moment, is inviting your heart to erupt into praise. The psalm continues, I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength and my soul, you increased. Here's another reason that I think thankfulness is going to get at the heart of something deeper than just trying to be a more thankful person. As his thankfulness overflows into praise, his praise overflows into 
humility, humbling. As soon as he bows at the temple, he says, God, he is thankful that God has exalted above all things his name and his word. I think we often think that we're going to come to God and God's going to exalt our name. Kind of why we're here. We want our life to be better. And how do you define your life being better? Well, more influence, more power, more recognition, more scope to pursue the pleasures that you give yourself as, as this is what I want out of my life. And God, I, I'm just going to recruit him. Maybe if I do righteous things or show up at church, I will somehow indebt him to me and he will provide for me the pleasures that I'm seeking. But true praise and, and thankfulness that assaults pride and, and flips everything right side up puts God's name and God's word above all things. Uh, something David Edmonds shared with me this week from Paul David Tripp. He's got this book, New Morning Mercies. It's really helpful. If you're looking for a devotional, we highly recommend it. But he says, in that book, this, this either or, the lifestyle of complaint and that of gratitude are both rooted in the way you view yourself. Complaint really is an identity issue. If you have placed yourself in the center of your world, then you will live with an entitled, I deserve blank attitude. And because you do, you will have a constant reason to complain. Because the reality is the universe is really not about you. Do you see that? If your whole world is about you and you're constantly seeking that one thing that you think is going to make you happy and you realize that in this fallen, terrible, awful, broken world with your fallen, terrible, broken, awful life, you're just not going to get it that often. You're going to have a constant reason to sit there and complain. But back to Ephesians 5, we're going to transition. We're going to take the one, we're going to replace it with the other. If God is the center of the universe instead of me, then the things that he's pursuing, the things that he's doing, the end to which he is moving all things is assured, and I'm grateful for it. Lifting his name high, putting his word up high. That's happening every single time that I train my heart to be grateful rather than complain. He continues in verse 4. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. They shall sing of the ways of the Lord, For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty, the proud, he knows from afar. Now, this one was a a difficult verse for me to try to figure out exactly what it's talking about because you think to yourself, really? All the kings of the earth are going to give thanks to the Lord? It doesn't seem like that's the case. If I put myself in, in the mindset of like, okay, who are the kings of the earth currently? How much money are you going to put on the bet that they are going to give thanks to God? Like they're going to flip? Especially if this thing we were just talking about with pride is such a big deal. Aren't like kings the most proud people? Well, he says, shall give thanks. There is a thing that is coming where where they will submit to God in his presence. And you see it, you see it in the Psalms, Psalm 102, 15 says, nations will fear the name of the Lord, all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. But you can also see it really clearly in Isaiah 60. So again, the book of Isaiah can be intimidating, but it's just so full of so much imagery that gives you a way to think about the things to come. You just say, God wins, everything's made right, that's lovely. But how do you fill that out? 
Well, you can use the imagery at the end of Isaiah. In Isaiah 60, it says in several places, but one that I like is verse 11. It says, your gates shall be open continually, talking about the new Zion, the new city, the place where God dwells with his people. Day and night, they shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. The remade world involves God's total triumph over the Lord's, God's total triumph over the kings of the earth. There will be a time when even the great give God glory. And yet, I think what's really beautiful about verse 6 there is it says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. That upside-down, right-side-up world that the, the gospel gives us, that the Bible teaches us, I think is, is something we really need to confront here. Another reason that we've got to choose thankfulness rather than complaint or choose thankfulness rather than fill in the blank of kind of its opposite is the way that the Lord uses it to, to humble us so that we can understand our real state before God. The Bible's all over this. You go through the New Testament, you see it constantly as Jesus, who is God, becomes man. He looks past Caesar's palace, not the, you know, casino, there it is. <laughs> not the casino, but the actual place where Caesar reigned over the empire of Rome. He looks past the Pharisees' home, and he is born in a stable to some poor, 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 poor people. He then goes about doing his ministry, and as he's living his life and doing his ministry, who does he go and he talk to? He's not a snob toward the Pharisees. He'll eat with them, but he's confrontational with them. And all of these other people he also eats with. He also eats with the tax collector. He also watches the Pharisees judge him as a woman who is a prostitute, walks up to Christ, washes his feet with her tears, and then wipes his feet with her hair. The, the, the Pharisees are saying to each other, Jesus can't be a prophet. If he knew who this woman was and what she's doing to him, he wouldn't let her touch his feet. Pride, 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 pride. And Jesus stops everything and he starts talking to Peter. And he says, there are two servants that are forgiven. One 500 denarii, I mean like massive amount of money, and one 50. The Lord forgives the debt of both. Who's going to love that Lord more? And Peter says, the one who had the greater debt forgiven. He says, <laughs> well spoken, you're right. If you want to love God more, you need to see the magnitude of what he's forgiven. When Jesus says that he's come to, that doctors come for the sick, not the well, he's not saying that the Pharisees are well. He's saying that we all need to realize our sickness before God if we're going to get the medicine that heals that sickness. That means that when you get into James later in the New Testament, and he talks about how we don't give undue honor to people just because they're rich, and we don't give the worst seats to all the poor people just because they're poor. He's preaching the gospel that God modeled for us through Jesus of going low and showing us the value that is to be seen in the ones who are maybe kind of unruly. What would it be like if this church really had the gospel ethic of looking at the people who are wealthy and encouraging them to see themselves in humility, looking at the people who don't really have everything put together perfectly? And sitting at their feet in order to learn how we stand 
before God. Well, what, what kind of community would that humility preach? Oh, I don't know if you have ever seen it. I learned a lot of lessons from the Kung Fu Panda franchise. And uh, there's a main character named Poe, Jack Black, his panda, and he becomes the dragon warrior. Nobody saw it coming. Shifu, who's uh, played by Dennis Hoffman, and he's really small, but he's like the master, and he gets superseded. Poe becomes the master, you know? And it's like the end of the movie. They all realize that, that Poe has achieved like enlightenment or whatever. And Shifu, the master, comes up to him and says, oh, Poe, I see that you have achieved enlightenment or whatever. And Poe's like, yeah, I guess so. And then Shifu kind of looks up and says, will you teach me? You think he's going to reject it. You think he's going to walk away. You think he's going to break his staff in anger because this idiot became leader and he's now what? But instead, he just values, he just values the enlightenment. He just says, will you teach me? Learned a lot of lessons from those movies. I don't know that it necessarily preaches the gospel, but oh my gosh, it was really moving to me personally. We want that kind of humility, and that only comes with a thankfulness that is constantly bringing you lower, bringing God higher, lifting up His word and His name. And in the process, just like John the Baptist said, He's increasing in what's happening to us. You're not actually becoming less. You're just understanding more accurately who you actually are. He must increase, and I must decrease. Thankfulness is a beautiful, perfect way into that math. The psalm concludes by saying, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. Your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. As the psalmist stitches all this back together, as he kind of erupts into this final statement of praise and statement of trust in God, even though he's surrounded by so many enemies, it invites us to, to kind of put the whole of the Bible together there. Now we trust that the Lord's steadfast love was very present in the Old Testament. It was something that they sang about. There's another psalm. If you just give yourself the discipline of reading through the psalms, a couple of them will really stand out. Let's just be totally honest. Some of them are going to kind of blend together. But a couple of them will really stand out. And there's one that retells the history of Israel, as many of them do. But after every sentence, it says, The steadfast love of the Lord lasts forever. And then you read the next sentence about how God raised them up in, and provided for them while they were in Egypt. The steadfast love of the Lord remains forever. Then it talks about how he, he sent the plagues to, to beat Pharaoh. The steadfast love of the Lord will last forever. It says it over and over and over and over again. Just like our song today. People want to break the Old Testament and the New Testament apart. But the understanding that they had as Old Testament believers was that God gives that mercy, gives that grace over and over and over again. And his love is not this fickle thing that's only for those who are the LeBron James of the faith. But it is a steadfast love that never fails. So much so that they say it over and over and over again. That's absolutely present and true in the Old Testament. But of course, we see it most clearly. We see it most fully in this expression of Jesus Christ. 
that God would come and be among us as one of us. Yeah, throughout the Old Testament, he came to be with that people. He spoke to Abraham. He gave them a, a people. He gave them a group that became this tribe, that became this series of tribes. And then he brought them out to a place where he came and he exists among them, not only in his word, but also in the real presence of God there in the temple. And then we get into the New Testament and we see that God's, God's penchant, his, his, his habit of coming low and being among the people, of trying to reconcile the people in rebellion against him, just continues. That he never changes and he is merciful. That he has made a steadfast love covenant with people and he's not going to renege. We see it perfectly in Jesus. How will God triumph over all the other gods and all the other kings? Jesus. How will you be able to praise that high and lofty name, lift high the word of God in the name of God? Jesus. How does God regard the lowly? Well, we know that. We see that perfectly in Jesus. How do I know that God is with me in the midst of all of my troubles? Jesus. He delivers us through Jesus. His steadfast love is guaranteed through Jesus. So I can underline for you how important it is for us to be thankful, and hopefully that motivates you to actually go about it. But how do you actually do it? What's the, the daily moment that pokes you to remind you to be actually thankful? How do you build that into your life? Well, Jesus. What do I mean by that? I mean that when you experience pleasure in this life, not just grand like spiritual pleasures of singing praise up here, but I mean like just anything, pineapple drink at Real Taqueria. I hope you go and buy a lot of that pineapple drink and tell them that I sent you and maybe they'll give me refills. I don't know. It's just something that could happen. We're not a massive church, but if it did, that'd be great. And you experience that everyday just human pleasure. You can stop in that pleasure, to enjoy, to remember the master of the feast that is Jesus. Um, yesterday, Rachel and I got to have a couple of families over for dinner. And when we do that, and we do it on a Saturday where we got the day, we enjoy taking that day to prep for that evening. Yeah, we're going to hang out with the girls, we're going to do some fun stuff, but we're going to use that day for hospitality. It's going to involve a lot of cleaning, kind of knocking the yard into shape taking our time, planning out something that would really maybe take a minute, but be delicious for the people that are coming over. Look around the house and try to see it from their eyes, not out of the fear of judgment, but out of a desire to, to build sort of a little box that when they open up will explode with all kinds of fun pleasures for them. You see this in the people who really get hospitality. I don't want to embarrass some of the people here, but I know who they are. When our guests show up, we want to be able to unfold for them one thing after another that we've prepped through the day and say, what do you think of this, though? Okay, now try it with this sauce. What do you think? The temperature, is it okay in here? Do you want something else to drink? We've got lots of ice. We, 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 made, we made sure we got ice because we want the drinks to be cold on a hot day for you. And you just open up one thing after another with these little pleasures. Do you understand? He's the master of the feast. We see in John, not only him turning water into wine in his first miracle, but John 14, the high priestly, uh, not high priestly prayer, but this upper room discourse, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He's preparing the feast. (laughs) He's making sure the temperature is just right. He's looking at you and thinking about you. He's trying to build the perfect experience for you. And even in this fallen world right now, every time you taste these little pleasures, pleasures of the table for sure, but just the pleasures of fellowship. You can always have your mind keyed into what will be, what God has promised to be for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your pleasure gives you opportunity for thankfulness. I think we can get that. But I I think through Christ, even your pain, even your pain can give you reason for thankfulness. See, God does discipline those whom he loves. Not all of your suffering is discipline. Be careful to hear me say that. But some of it is. And yet through Christ, I can be thankful that the discipline I experience from God is not punishment. Do you know the difference? The angry parent who in a rage spanks his child is punishing his child. The wise parent who carefully explains exactly what's happening who helps their child understand that the discipline that's coming is to stop them from ever doing this in the future, to help them learn wisdom? That's a loving parent. Do you see the difference between discipline and punishment? Through Christ, you're not being punished. You've already been forgiven. Through Christ, you're being disciplined lovingly. It says in Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. No more over and over again. Be zealous, really repent. And if it's one of those pains that doesn't come from your own sin, it just comes from being in a fallen world, then again, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus who raged at the tomb of Lazarus as he thought about death. Look to Jesus who wept at the tomb of Lazarus, knowing he was about to raise him up from the grave. Look to the sympathetic tears over Jerusalem as Jesus experienced with you whatever it is you're feeling. In your pleasure, in your pain, in your just everyday relationship, be thankful to the Lord. Yesterday, I got to take one of my kids with me to Home Depot. It just seems like an easy thing. Usually, though, when I say, hey, I got to go to Home Depot, anybody want to go? It's either crickets or just like this chorus. They almost like harmonize. No. And I, I try not to take it personally. I think it's a Home Depot issue, not a me issue, certainly. But yesterday, one of the kids said yes. She goes with me, we go to Home Depot. It's run of the mill. There's no special thing. There's no special treat. It's Home Depot. But she wanted to go with me. And so we're, we're together through that experience. I'm thinking about it and remembering it. Do you know why? Because of the relationship. See, the thing about Jesus is that he's not just a code of ethics. He's not just an example for you to follow. He is a one to be with you, even to the very end of the age. He's one to experience with you your everyday life. Be thankful. Open your eyes to this truth and be 
thankful. Of course, all of this matters if you actually know him. So that thing about discipline, he, he then continues in Revelation 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, not the Pharisee, not the, not the super righteous, not the one who's got their theology perfectly ticked out, but if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Don't you want that? That's what he offers. I pray that you would receive it. Lord God and Heavenly Father, this morning as we think about you and your goodness, as we reflect on the Psalms and thankfulness, Lord, may we be overwhelmed. May we be full. Father, for those that are exploring whether or not Christianity is true, Father, let this, this be a motivation to take that next step in exploration. Maybe it's reading another book, but maybe it's just speaking to somebody here about why they believe. Lord, we don't want to go around somebody's brain. We want to go through it. There's all kinds of reasons. But Lord, we also want to address the heart, the desire for you. I pray that you would stir up that desire for your glory and our good. I pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.